For millennia, Christians around the world have embraced the Bible to be the inspired, authoritative Word of God, given to His people for their salvation and spiritual nourishment. But where do we get this book that we hold in our hands? What do we know about the original manuscripts? How was the text passed along from generation to generation? And who even decided which book should be in the Bible? In our interview today, I'm talking with two Bible scholars who have spent years thinking, writing, and presenting on these important issues. John Mead and Peter Gurry serve together as professors at Phoenix Seminary, where they both also work as co-directors of the Text and Canon Institute. They're also the co-authors of Scribes and Scripture, the amazing story of how we got the Bible from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, John and Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway podcast today. Thanks for having us, Matt. It's great to be here. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the Bible, uh, how we got it, what those original documents were like, and what we understand about them Uh, how we decided or how we came to understand what documents should be in the Bible. But before we get into some of that, I want to go all the way back to the very beginning. I wonder if you guys could speak a little bit about the original manuscripts of the Bible, the actual original documents that were created by the biblical writers themselves. Uh, Maybe we start with the Old Testament. What do we know about those original manuscripts? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. So the original manuscripts for the old, what we Christians call the Old Testament, what Jews would call the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible, uh, then we're talking about manuscripts written in Hebrew and some in Aramaic, right? Portions of Ezra and Daniel written in the language of Aramaic. Um, but what do we, what do we know? Um, well, I would say before 1947, which is when the, what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, we don't we didn't know a lot in some ways, it, though it mm. turns out the much later manuscripts from around 1000 AD, a tradition we call the Masoretic Text. Uh, we, we describe this in the book. Uh, there's actually a wonderful article about it now on textingcanon.org on this Masoretic Text that undergirds almost all of our English translations. Uh, turned out to be quite a rugged text, okay? But after 1947, after some some discoveries of scrolls and fragments of scrolls in the caves at Qumran, what we learned is that much of that Masoretic text tradition can go way back. Like we, in fact, most of it can be confirmed for a book like Isaiah. But in the book, we also talk about different kinds of copying. So there were maybe just over 200 fragments of scrolls discovered, and those fragments of scrolls show different kinds of copying, what we call in the book conservative copying, and then maybe free copying is is one label applied to them. And so just a quick analogy here, and then we should talk about the New Testament. But just when we talk about, say, our English translations, they're on a spectrum of like very conservative literal translations, right? Like your New American Standard Bible versus the old Precious Moments Bible, Matt, right? This <laughs> There's... there's <laughs> There, I don't there's know quite about a, that one. There's quite a spectrum here between the NASB and the and our Precious Moments Bible. Yes, and so um, so so one maybe could envision ancient copying on a similar kind of spectrum. There's this letter for letter, very conservative copying that goes all the way back to those manuscripts before the time of Jesus's birth. Uh, that that is reflected in the later manuscripts as well. But then there was also a, a tendency to make the text readable and understandable, and maybe even illustrating it within its copying, okay, its meaning within its copying. But yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a history. 
So before, before we go on then to the New Testament, I wonder if you mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls and the, the caves of Qumran, and maybe some of our listeners have heard those words that sounds like something almost out of a Dan Brown novel or, or something like that. So I wonder if you could explain what were the Dead Sea Scrolls? You said they were discovered in the mid-40s, and why were they so significant? So again, so they were discovered in 1947 on the northwest corner of the Dead Sea in Israel. Okay, there, there are these caves at Kerbert el Qumran, and we just simply call it Qumran. And there were 12 caves that we've discovered so far, 11 of them containing manuscripts, but really only three of them containing Hebrew biblical manuscripts. So caves one, four, and 11. What were the other manuscripts? So there were other writings from the community at Qumran there, the Essenes, uh, we would call them. And they had their own sectarian writing. They were Jewish groups, sorry, back just before the time of Jesus and up through, we could say, maybe 130 A.D. when the Romans came in and, and, and sort of kicked all the Jews out of the land. So, so this was a Jewish group copying Jewish scriptures, also composing their own writings, okay? Some 900 total manuscripts but only about 200 of those were biblical. So what it did is bef before that discovery, we had to rely on later manuscripts for what the text of the Old Testament said, the original text of the Old Testament said. With the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we were able to go back in time over a thousand years and look at the state of the text of books like the Psalter, Isaiah, Deuteronomy, uh, firsthand, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's the significance of them. Yeah. Peter, help us understand what these manuscripts actually look and feel like. I think we, we have in our mind maybe papyrus or some kind of parchment, or was it clay tablets? What's the scope of the physical materials that were used to record Scripture on? Great them? question. So, the, you know, the, in the ancient world, they used a number of writing materials, everything from stone to occasionally wood, although it doesn't survive, usually. Uh, clay tablets, right? Our biblical manuscripts, for the most part, are on one of three materials. Either parchment, made from animal skins, papyrus, which is made from the papyrus plant that grows natively in the Nile River in Egypt, and then eventually, much later, obviously, but paper, as we would know it. So those are three main materials that you, that you have them on. Papyrus tends to, tends to survive very well in dry climates, so Egypt, whereas parchment tends to, tends to survive, it can survive pretty well anywhere if it's taken care of. So if, mm. correct me on this, meat if I'm wrong, but the Dead Sea Scrolls are actually on parchment for the most part. Mm -hmm. Is that right? That's right. Our earliest New Testament manuscripts are mostly on papyrus. And that, that gets at the question of like how these would have survived, because I think if we think of paper, certainly, but even something maybe more durable, like a, a parchment of some sort, uh, it seems like you stick that in the ground, you find that buried somewhere, it's going to disintegrate pretty quickly. So how, when we dig these things up, what are they actually in? Yeah, well, so the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, were discovered in caves. And in some cases, they were still in the clay jars. Is that right, John? <laughs> and um, so that that's one way. Another way is a, a very large number of Old Testament manuscripts come from what we call the Cairo Geniza. A Geniza is a kind of, a, think of it as a storage room in a synagogue hmm. um, where they would put older manuscripts as they were wearing out. So you put them in there. So that's one place you could, you could find them. When it comes to New Testament papyri, we find them in places like trash dumps. So once they would wear out, they would get thrown out. 
and we found a, a number of them in large trash dumps in Egypt. Um, other times we don't exactly know <laughs> we, <laughs> where they come from, <laughs> so that's always interesting. And then, you know, later on, when you get into the parchment manuscripts in particular, honestly, the best place to find them today is in old libraries, where they've gotten lost in the shuffle of a lot of old books, frankly. Yeah, so, so in, in those cases, it's like, they they were they were viewed as precious scripture and so they were maintained in some library somewhere and over the years they kind of were just passed That's along right. and uh, and we can still That's find right. them. So there. take one of our most important biblical manuscripts is called Codex Sinaiticus because it was discovered at the monastery at Mount Sinai in Egypt and it was discovered by Western scholars at least if I can use use the term discovery there a bit loosely it was discovered in the you know in the 20th century. But it had been at the monastery for, for centuries, and that's because it's an incredibly well-stocked library. It's been there for a long, long time. It's probably the longest continuously running monastery in the world, and they have one of the best collections of Greek manuscripts outside of maybe the Vatican Library. So, yeah, yeah. old libraries is a great place to find manuscripts. So, so give us a sense then, maybe both of you could speak to this. Where are all these, the oldest manuscripts that we have for maybe both the Old and New Testament where are these right now? Are they kind of spread out all over the world, at, at lots of different museums and monasteries, or are there a limited number of places we could go and effectively find the best, oldest manuscripts that we have? And they are from everywhere, Matt. Let's see. A lot of these Dead Sea Scrolls we've talked about are still in Israel, in Jerusalem, at you know the National Library and Museum there. But not all. Some have made their way across the Atlantic uh, into different libraries like in Princeton and elsewhere. Of course, you and, and your listeners are probably familiar with some of the forgeries that came across the Atlantic to places like the Museum of the Bible, Southwestern Baptist right. Theological Seminary. So getting back to that earlier point that Peter was making, sometimes we don't know where they come from. And, uh, and the, the key word here is provenance. So we need to, of course, be careful about tracing that history right mm. as to where they came from but but yeah so so hebrew manuscripts are are all over a lot of the the codices are in these university libraries like in cambridge and oxford um you just said you think you've said it a couple times you said this word codices or codex yeah codex is kind of like an early book form so it looks it would look just like a book to us but we call it a codex because it's it's a primitive book form so it's not Right, the, the way in which pages were grouped together and sewn together is not quite how we create a modern book. But to most eyes, it would look pretty similar. And, and then you mentioned these forgeries that th there were some famous ones in the U.S. a few years ago that were identified and, and kind of then dealt with. To a layperson, it can kind of wonder, like, how prevalent is that? How often are people creating these forgeries? How does that actually happen? And what does that say about how confident we can be that we actually know what we have with some of these documents? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> that's a podcast in itself right there. But let me let me take a stab at it, okay? It's more prevalent than we would like, and it's maybe even in some ways more prevalent than you'd think. I mean, the short answer is why do why do people do it? Sometimes they do it for fame, sometimes for the thrill of it. Sometimes there's maybe a more nefarious theological agenda in the case of the recent gospel of Jesus's wife, if your listeners have heard of that. Yeah. It, from what we can tell, the guy who created that had a, a bit of an axe to grind against the Catholic Church. 
that's probably putting it mildly. But um, other times mm-hmm. it's for money. If you can create a convincing forgery, then and it's a forgery of something like a Dead Sea Scroll, then you can potentially sell it for a whole lot of money to people. So mm-hmm. those are some of the motives that might be behind why somebody would, would forge a manuscript. Unless it's not like we're not really worried about most of our manuscripts, if I can put it that way. It's not like we're, we're doubtful about most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but scholars who study these things do, anytime a new discovery is made, we try to look for any indications that it might be a forgery, right? And that's why it takes a really good trained eye to study these things because a good trained eye can often spot things that are odd or out of place or unusual about a, a forgery. And, and so often it's sort of the, I, I hate to call it the instinct, but the instinct of the scholar who's who's had a lot of experience with manuscripts can be even better in some cases than, say, like modern modern scientific testing of things. With the Gospel of Jesus' wife, it was the eyes of really good scholars who were the first to, to call it out as a forgery and later testing in various ways. Some of it actually didn't even confirm there was a forgery because it can't. It's not the kind of thing that can confirm it's a forgery. It can tell you maybe the date of the papyrus, but that doesn't tell you that it's a forgery. It could just tell you that the forgery was able to buy old papyrus. Right, the guy was using actual ancient papyrus and writing on that, yeah. So you've already kind of spoken to this a little bit, John, but I wonder if you guys can now help us understand what happens next. So we, we have these access to all these different manuscripts. Many of them are fragmentary, not a whole book of the Bible, certainly not even the whole Bible. How do scholars then take that and actually construct some complete picture of what Scripture says? Right. Well, I'll start us here. So Scripture is a translation of a Greek word, graphe, which really just means writing. And there's no doubt that there were lots and lots of writings, okay? For whatever reason, and this, I, I used to do this too, I think before I started just reading on this topic, I, for some reason I kind of just thought that out of Jewish literature— all you had was the Old Testament, let's say. <laughs> like they only wrote 39 books and they only mm. read those books and copied those books and they copied them pristinely, you know, and you, you just kind of had this, this sort of romanticized view of how it all came together, you know. My guess is that many people listening right now are like, wait, what are you talking about romanticized yeah, yeah, yeah. view? You I should. thought that is, that's what I was yeah, talking right, about. Right. It didn't school. happen that way. What do you mean it didn't happen that way? Yeah, but it kind of goes back to even reading the Old Testament itself. I was just reviewing some of these references to, to these books. Like after, say, the narrator of Kings and Chronicles will finish going through the records of one king, they'll say, oh, and, you know, the very the, all the other works and deeds that this king did was written in the book of the annals of, you know, Israel or Judah or whatever. And we don't usually po- stop long enough to ponder, where's that book? <laughs> uh, is that, is yeah. that, wait, where is that book? And what we realize is that Kings and Chronicles are sort of digests of those original books that really were in royal annals of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah stored perhaps in the temple archive. Okay, but when the temple was destroyed, maybe some of those works were already gone, but ancient Israelite historians had already accessed those annals and condensed them into the flowing narratives that we call Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Okay, so that's... That's yeah, fascinating. So, so we almost have like the Cliff Notes version in, of the history, it, and that's what we consider our scripture Indeed, today. We, we actually have the narrative that incorporates the data points, the chronological points that were in the annals, but they're now also put in a framework that interprets the events and sayings for us, right? This is the beauty 
of narrative. It's not just sort of a bare chronicle of events. <laughs> it's actually providing the interpretation, the, the, the historian's evaluation, right, of a king's deeds, of a prophet's words, these sorts of things. So, so anyways, we, there's lots and lots of books that don't wind up in our Old Testament. This is, this is now kind of comes to the question of what we call the canon of Scripture. And, and how do we have the 66 books in our Bible? Uh, and I just want to sort of shoot down one very popular misconception and myth before we maybe get into just a brief answer to a long, long question. Uh, it's not through a council, okay? This is very popular amongst Christians. Certainly people who want to take shots at Christianity, they talk about this Council right. of Nicaea, Right, which we know as a council where Christians, right around 325 A.D., hammered out the the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Right. So it's it's a real it was a real council that actually yes, did happen, and it hammered out very significant doctrinal matters like how we talk about one God, right, Father, Son, and Spirit. Right. I mean, these are these are massive, massive doctrinal concepts. But to most people's surprise, there's actually no record of that council settling the canon of Scripture. That is, that, that council did not decide on a, a, a list of books, okay, that belong in the Bible, right? There's no, there's actually no record, no evidence that that council ever did that, despite the popular opinion infused into our culture by Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, right? That's, that's where most people get that idea, even though they would say, well, I've never read the book or watched the movie, they still have this notion mm -hmm. that this council gave us a Bible, and you say, no, it didn't, because there's no evidence for that. So anyways, so, yeah. so how did it happen? I'm just going to make this really, really brief. Early, early Jews, early Christians, they kept copying these books, okay? They, they copied the canonical books. They also copied the books that wouldn't be eventually in the canon. But they clearly kept using, reading, and eventually listing out books that they considered to be divinely inspired out of that large group, okay? They only kept returning to a select number of books. And they kept returning to a select number of books that almost all, if not all, Jews and Christians agreed upon. So, so let's just kind of put, put this into sort of like, we'll just give it, to, we'll just talk about the Christian context for a second. The Old Testament was mainly settled, right? The 39 books in the Protestant Old Testament are basically the books of the Jewish canon. They're in a different order. We don't need to talk about that here, but, but they're the same books, interestingly. Roman Catholics have a different canon with seven extra books. But let's just move, remove that for a second and just say, look, the vast majority of the Old Testament, all Christians throughout all time have agreed upon. And, and it was no wonder that every Christian, when they started to list out which books that they thought and, and others thought were divinely inspired, they always came back to those books of the Hebrew canon. Let's go to the New Testament, too, for just a second. Around 180 AD and forward, there doesn't seem to be much dispute over four canonical gospels. Christians like Origen noted, heretics had lots of gospels. But we've always only had four. Okay, it's fascinating. Same thing with Paul's letters, a little bit of debate about Hebrews, whether that should be included, right, in that 13 or 14 letter collection of Paul. But basically, we're talking about a core canon of Old Testament, Gospels, Acts, Paul, Revelation, definitely firmly in, then kind of disputed, and then, and then kind of out in some places. But then like 1 Peter and 1 John, the two 
key letters of the general epistles received very early. So what most scholars want to talk about is that there's this core canon that all Christian groups seem to agree upon with some fuzzy books at the edges. And eventually, in most Christian groups, books like Second Peter wind up in the canon, but there's still you know, some dispute about them in the Syriac church, for example. Um, and so I think we just have to kind of come to terms with that history as, as Protestant Christians even, and just say it looks like our Bible is, is a representative of the sort of most general opinion about the canonical boundaries, but we can't say that every Christian group has this same Bible. Does that, does that make sense? Mm, that's helpful, and it, it does probably paint a picture that is a little less clean, a little less tight than we might expect or wish yeah. was true. Peter, I, you know, it sounds like if we're saying that it's not as simple as some council chose the books that were in the Bible or even an emperor chose, Emperor Constantine chose which books would be in the Bible, um, couldn't one critique of this view be that this is canon by democracy then? It's sort of like popular opinion, and that's that's what we're basing our faith on is what most Christians or most Christians who were in positions of authority were saying at the time. How can we be confident if that's what we're saying here? Well, I think a couple of things. One is we can think more about how we as Christians identify a book that should be canonical and how we should be able to hear the voice of our Savior in that book. A verse that John and I like to quote a lot in this is when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, right? That we as Christians should be able to read these books of the Bible and and have a sense that, yeah, this, this really is inspired by God, right? Sort of an immediate sense, if I can call it that. But I think beyond that, there is some benefit to thinking through historically the way that it wasn't just a decision of a single council, let's say. And the benefit of that is it means no single individual, no matter how charismatic or significant, was able to overturn that those, those thousands, let's call them thousands, of decisions made by Christians across time and place. So when Luther comes along and is not a very big fan of the book of James, right, and places it along with several other books at the end of his New Testament, okay, it takes about a generation, if that, for the Lutheran tradition to say no. <laughs> and, and that's pretty significant because their tradition is named after him, right? And yet they say to him, no, Luther, you're wrong. This is not an epistle of straw, in fact. We just have to read it better and realize how it fits with everything else in the canon of Scripture. So I think actually we can take comfort from the fact that it wasn't a single council at a single time, at a single place, that determined what our Bible looks like, but rather it was Christians, and and going back to the Old Testament, of course, Jews, across time and place recognizing these books. And and personally, I find it a great comfort to see the three great branches of Christianity all agree completely on their New Testament. Where I think we find the most differences is actually the the smaller and more regional a church gets, like the Syriac church or like the Ethiopic church, Mm -hmm. the more you find the differences in the canon. Um, Now, obviously, you talk about the Apocrypha in the Old Testament, but at least in terms of the New Testament, the canon looks the exact same for those three big branches of Christianity. Fascinating. I think one question that even the clarification around how the books were, quote-unquote, decided, that it was sort of the testimony of all Christians everywhere over time, rather than one person or one council's decision, that doesn't necessarily then address the question of, are there books that are missing from the canon that we just haven't found or that were somehow lost? And so, you know, the classic kind of Uh, what-if scenario would be. What if archaeologists digging somewhere in Israel unearthed 
some manuscript that has never been seen before, something that was maybe claimed to be written by the Apostle Paul or by Peter. And, you know, our best scholars looked at that and saw, no, the, the writing, the type of writing, the word choice, the syntax, all of that seems to really fit with what we have from Peter or Paul in the New Testament already. How would you guys think about that? Is it possible that we would find a, a letter from the New Testament that we would consider to be Scripture? These are the good ones. These are the good ones. <laughs> you want to take a stab, Peter? Sure. I'll, okay, I'll answer it, and then John can correct it, because <laughs> he probably won't like mine answer. My is answer. this a quick question? Is this a hard question to answer, or is it is it uh, take a lot of nuance, or does it feel... How, how do you think about this kind of a question? How do we think about it, John? Well, okay. it's 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 a hypothetical, so there's no like right. There's no way to answer it correctly. Right. Does that make sense? Like, how would we know? Well, we'd have to see what it is. You know, if we right. we know that First yeah. Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. So, if we manage to find another letter that claimed to be by Paul to the Corinthians, and it fit everything about it, fit with what we know of Paul, let's say. Okay, then we can have a really interesting, now we have a really interesting question, but we'd have to see it first. So to answer it sort of in the hypothetical, like, what would we do if, well, if we just discovered, I mean, because, and part of this, because, like, look, lots of books have been claimed to be part of the Bible through history, you know. There's a letter to the Laodiceans that gets copied in in Latin manuscripts in the Middle Ages. It's very short, and some people accept it as authentic, not, not many, but so it has been done where people have claimed a book is by Paul, and it's almost mm. certainly not. Yeah, I think I think the question gets at maybe the theological priors that go into this kind of conversation, and it's like, it, are we open like we were at one point as the church to discussing what books should be in or not, or is there some date at which we've decided no more books can be added, and, and why would we say that? What justification would we have for saying that? Yeah, it, I think what why I sort of... I always cringe at that question. I get asked it a lot too. And I just, I, I, I always just have a slight cringe moment because it sort of puts two, two of the big criteria into slight tension. So on the one hand, right, canon is a traditional conversation. It's, a, it's about what, what the vast swath of Jews and Christians have considered to be the places to go to hear God's voice, right? I think that's in some ways bedrock. But then, like Peter was saying earlier, there are these verses within the New Testament itself with Jesus saying, right, my sheep know my voice, right? They learn to listen to me. So on the one hand, I kind of want to be, I want to sort of leave it theoretically possible, right, that there's another book out there uh, in which we could hear the shepherd's voice. But I got to say this, though, Matt, all of this has been played out in history. So these these apocryphal books, not the apocrypha, but but the apocryphal books gospels let's say early christians constantly weighed the sayings in those gospels could this come from jesus even though it was something not found in the four gospels could it be authentic and you could even they i think even someone like origin might say well maybe there's an an authentic statement of jesus in one of these gospels but that doesn't mean the whole thing should be included in the canon you see gregory the great yeah gregory actually thinks that the epistle to the Laodiceans is Pauline, like it goes back to Paul, but he knows in the tradition there's only 14 epistles of Paul. Like you can't, you cannot just 
change stuff. that tradition. You cannot add a book and just say, oh, we have a new canon, you know? So, so I guess that's how I've kind of come to answer the question is I, I want to sort of be theor theoretically sensitive to the possibility, but I also know that from church history, there's lots of times and places where this has played out and most and mm, most individuals yeah. just say, well, I'm going to hold a private opinion about this. Mm. I'm going to say that just after I've looked at the epistle to, to the Laodiceans, it goes back to Paul, but that doesn't mean I can add it to the Bible. Just like Martin Luther, who has real questions about James, knows really that he can't just remove it from the Bible. Like, he can have some <laughs> private opinions, but even a, a personality like Luther can't alter the Bible that's been with the church for 1,500 years. Like, it just doesn't work. So let's take a big step back from, we've been talking a lot about history and the nuances of this, and, and we've maybe learned that the process of both copying and kind of transmitting all of these ancient documents, and then even deciding or coming to some clarity on which documents were scripture and which aren't, is maybe not as clean and clear-cut as we would expect or were taught. How does this understanding of Scripture and the development of the canon come into contact with ideas like inspiration and inerrancy? Do you want me to start with the canon? I'll start with the canon. If canon in this conversation means anything, it means authority. Okay, It means which books can we confirm points of doctrine upon? That's... That's not a Protestant definition. That goes back to Jerome, okay? And I do think it goes back even before him, but, but most clearly there. So, so one of those stalwart pillars of our doctrine of Scripture is that it is our sufficient authority for faith and practice. It, what's interesting is that canon is the word for that, okay? So uh, it's, it's the list of books upon which we can base faith and practice. It's our fundamental authority. It also gets at, as we've been kind of talking about, it, it also is tied to the, to, to the concept of divine inspiration because, because those authoritative books were also recognized. Again, I don't think the church is creating the canon. The church is recognizing or confessing which books are divinely inspired and therefore authoritative. Does that make sense? So, so we're not talking about in this process the church creating the canon. I, I just don't. I just think church, the church fathers would have actually used different words to describe this process if that's what they thought they were doing. Athanasius right, writes a list of books, but he doesn't say he's creating it. In fact, he's doing something that's not even novel because you look back through the record. And Christians have already been confessing these books as divinely inspired by the time he sits down in 367 AD to, to write them out. Does that make sense? So, so I think as a Protestant, I can actually rest in God's providence and how he's orchestrated this, this process. It's, it's human to a degree. So, of course, it's messy. <laughs> right? But it's no less guided, providentially speaking, by, by our Lord. So as a Protestant, I, I, I look back through the record, and as detailed as the sources will let me get, I actually can step back and go, oh, this canon process is about Christians from all over the globe, without a centralized authority from all over the globe, recognizing the divinely inspired scriptures the, where the authoritative voice of God can be found. So 
Protestantism, I think, just latched on to that. They didn't really have to make a great argument for it. They just latched on to what was going on. That speaks well to the issue of authority and even inspiration. But then how about inerrancy? As we think about kind of going back to the first half of our conversation, just the process by which these documents were preserved by individual people, scribes, and and who else, how should we think about then how that would impact inerrancy? The, uh, The belief that this document we hold in our hands today is perfect and doesn't have any errors in it. So I think a couple of things are important here. Traditionally, evangelicals have limited um, inerrancy to what we call the autographs or the original documents. And we don't think that every translation is, is inerrant. We don't think that every copy is inerrant either. Certainly evangelicals have been well aware and Protestants were well aware of this in the Reformation that scribes made mistakes. They were aware even with the invention of the printing press that printers made mistakes as well. <laughs> the printing press did not. As, as you as a publisher know full well, does not eliminate mistakes in books. <laughs> it just makes it easier to see where they are maybe and then know it's in the same place in every single copy. Yeah, I was going to say it also can make mistakes more prevalent because they show up in all those you know, thousand That's copies it. of the book that you, you make just a, printed. You know, 50,000 run misprint is, is a misprint, 50,000 copies now. So it's always been, always been to some degree limited in that way. But what we mean then when we say, you know, my Bible is inerrant is we mean to the degree that my Bible is a good translation that reflects the autograph, it's inerrant as well. And the good news is because our manuscripts are, generally speaking, so good and we have such early ones, and the work of text criticism has been going on for so long, that, that by and large it's, it's safe to say that, that most of what you have in your English Bible is probably verbatim what's in the autograph. Where it's not, where we have some doubts about it, one of two things is true. One, it doesn't really affect the meaning. Or it's not an issue of theological error. And that's a distinction I always find helpful when I'm talking to students especially about this, is we talk about errors a lot when we're studying the manuscripts, but we're talking about scribal errors. And oftentimes a scribal error can still result in something that is not a theological error. Okay, so a little difference between the word and and but in Greek. They overlap in meaning, actually, so it's not even as clear-cut as that distinction would make it sound. But that's an easy difference, an easy change to make for a scribe that never, almost never, results in a theological error. So I might look at a manuscript and say it has scribal errors in it and not necessarily conclude from that that it has theological errors. So I would personally like to tie the doctrine of inerrancy uh, Yes, to the word level, I believe in verbal plenary inspiration. That is, God inspired every word. But you can change words in a sentence, and the sentence can still mean the same thing. Yeah. And so to that degree, I could have two different sentences that are both inerrant at, at, at the sentence level. Now, as, a, as, a, as mm. a, an evangelical Protestant, I still care about even the little details. And that's where I'd bring inerrancy back in the conversation and say it's precisely my belief in the doctrine of inerrancy that makes me so passionate about studying the manuscripts. Because I do want to know what every word yeah. is to the to the best of my ability, and then where where I where some uncertainty remains, thankfully, it's usually not in matters that affect interpretation. Hmm. That's so helpful. It's such a good helpful summary uh, and distinction there, where we kind of place that idea of inerrancy fundamentally. Maybe as a final question, I wonder if you could speak to the person listening who maybe their their mind has kind of just been blown, and and it's been seems like blown wide open in terms of what is the real story of their Bibles. And if it, they've been helped by that, but if they were being honest, they would say they do feel maybe a newfound sense of unease and of uncertainty about if, if this is all true, 
all my confidence in this this book, all my uh, the kind of foundational ideas that I might have had about where we got this and how we got it, are maybe don't make quite as much sense. It's harder than that, uh, and they feel a little bit nervous. Like, how how can I really be as confident or as sure as I once was? What would you say to that person, even kind of from a pastoral, but also that scholarly angle? What what advice would you give to that person right now? So first, I. I don't think we should abandon a robust doctrine of God's sovereignty and, and providence, right? So I want to I want to think as a Christian on this that providence has given us what we need. Okay, so that's I think clear and and kind of a, just a quick piggyback to that. Like there's different levels of certainty that Christians just need to think through. I'm pretty sure that all four of us on this call right now are certain on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead right? Or maybe I'll just speak for myself. There, you guys are a little quiet. So, uh, <laughs> so, okay. I'm okay. Good, 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 good. Yeah. So, so, um, so, so that is something I'm, I'm actually far more certain about that than, uh, that, that, that we've settled every problem in the wording of the text history. Okay. And I'm a text critic and I think, I think the results are good and, you know, and, and, and probable and all that. But, but there, there are some problems that still linger there, like that, that don't exist when I think about Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. Okay, I just think that's a different level of certainty than I have on whether it's a but or an and in this particular passage. Okay, uh, The second thing that I have found helps in talking with uh, lay Christians about these issues, one, one other item that's often overlooked is that Christians through the millennia have known about these problems. We are not the first to discover them. We are not even close to the first to lay eyes on differences in our manuscripts or, or, or issues about the canon of Scripture. Early Christians, Christians throughout the Middle Ages, the Reformers themselves, Christians in all generations, it seems, have been confronted with these issues with these real problems but they've approached them with a with a certain kind of mindset philosophy of faith seeking understanding they're not going to forfeit the faith based on a problem in this manuscript they're going to continue to believe in christ jesus as their lord and savior even while they look for solutions to these problems and that's in many ways i think what dr gurry and i have been trying to do personally uh, also through the book Scribes and Scripture, and, and as well through the resource of textandcanon.org, just trying to put faith-seeking understanding on display. And that's not to wipe away all the problems. It's just to say that the problems should probably not cause us to forfeit our faith in Jesus. Peter, what would you add to that, especially in the light of the fact that people have forfeited their faith, though, because of some of these problems, or at least they've cited these problems as reasons for questioning their faith, ultimately leaving their faith. So what would you say to the person who, who maybe fears that possibility? Yeah, I, I think I'd say, pastorally speaking, a, a big piece of my advice would be to just hit the pause button. Be willing to keep learning some more, because it may be that you've just heard something for the first time that you've never heard, and that in itself is, is really startling. And you just need to give it some more time. This is one podcast. You haven't heard us say everything there is to say. Even if you pick up the book and read the book, that isn't everything there is to say. And so Part of why we wrote the book, frankly, is so that we'd encourage people to read more, mm. to study more. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to say, 
you know, sometimes I think we can make knee-jerk reactions when we do feel that sense of, of, oh, no, wait, that's not what I was told before, or I didn't know that. What else don't I know? And I just say, slow down. It's a big world out there. Church history, as Dr. Mead was suggesting, is long. It's at least 2,000 years. <laughs> and and you're not the first person who's ever encountered the question that you have. So mm-hmm. I think just if I could just maybe give that one piece of advice, just hit the pause button. Be willing to learn more and keep reading. You might well have your question answered. I've had certainly questions linger sometimes for years in my own mind. And I'm really glad I let them linger because the answer I came to after a few years was much, much better <laughs> than the knee-jerk answer I was given by maybe checking Wikipedia or <laughs> in some cases given by a well-meaning youth pastor or, or whatever. So just be patient with yourself and keep seeking. Uh, good advice. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you, Peter, for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks, Matt. Our pleasure. That was John Mead and Peter Gurry on How We Got Our Bible. For more, be sure to check out their book with Crossway, Scribes and Scripture, the amazing story of how we got the Bible. Pick up your copy of the print edition for 30% off or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org slash plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a review and telling your friends about the show? That really helps. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.